You're listening to listener-supported WPKN in Bridgeport at 89.5 FM, online at WPKN.org. I'm Valerie Richardson, and I'm very happy to welcome Richard Klein to the airways. Hi, Richard. Hi, Valerie. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's a, it's a delight. Did you hear at the beginning of the show, I think maybe even twice, I said you are one of my very, very favorite people to uh, have conversations with on the air. Oh, don't let it. It's going to go to my head. Don't say that. <laughs> there, there, it, it, we, it's just always, we always reach sort of a transcendent moment. You just always have so many creative things going on. And I sort of, I, I love getting into uh, your your universe of, of creativity and art. And uh, so we usually talk about what's happening at the Aldrich Museum. Um, but today we're going to be talking about a, a project that you are doing as, as an artist. Uh, do you want to just uh, maybe briefly talk about what's going on at Aldrich and then we can have... um yeah we're um uh, we're actually changing exhibitions uh right now uh the Frank Stella exhibition that has been up for quite a while uh, due to the pandemic came down and we're installing part 2 of Tim Prentice's show uh actually this week and some listeners might recognize Tim Prentice's name uh as he's a Connecticut artist who lives up in Cornwall uh part of the landscape we'll be talking about today actually and um, then in October, we're opening a show of Carla Knight. I'm very excited about, uh, once again, another artist who lives in Connecticut in Reading. Uh, really interesting artist, hard to define. Um, her show will be opening uh, the second week in October. But, um, yeah, if, uh, if listeners have never been to the Aldrich, I think this fall is a great time to visit, actually. It is. It's a, a lovely time to go up to that, that part of the state. And, and it's always lovely to visit visit the Aldrich. So you you along with being uh, be, being a curator like like many people you you started out um, and have been an artist all the way through, and uh, you probably don't get a lot of time to 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 really do your own projects. But you you're doing something quite quite interesting, and uh, it's called the the understory. Um, and it's just you know it's it's about history, it's about geology, it's about a lot of things. Why don't, why don't you talk about just how you you sort of got into this. Well, one thing I just want to acknowledge first, the title of it, The Understory. I owe an incredible debt to Richard Power's book that came out, I think, about four years ago now, The Overstory. Right. Uh, a novel, incredible novel that um, I would recommend to anyone, um, which uh, is about the natural world and ties together all these stories of um, these different people uh, and their relationship with trees. Uh, incredible book, probably the, one of the best books I've read in several years. And when I was hunting for a title for this project, uh, I kept on coming back to the understory, and I, I couldn't shake it. And so, uh, if Richard Powers is out there, thank you, Richard, for uh, writing that book, but also providing like an impetus to uh, to title the, the show. Um, you know, this is a, a kind of uh, interesting. I don't usually work on a project basis. This is really a project. Um, I, I, you know, I work in the studio consistently, but uh, my work is not project-oriented. And uh, I think we could blame Instagram for this, ultimately, where uh, the artist K.K. Kozik, who runs this uh, space uh, on her property in Sharon, Connecticut, called the Ice House, um, was aware of my interest in geology through my postings on Instagram. And um, uh, the Ice House is an interesting place. It's uh, a small uh, 19th century building. It was an ice house uh, actually in KK's backyard in right in the center of Sharon on Sharon Green. And about three years ago, she started inviting artists to do projects there, um, generally in the warm weather with some exceptions. Uh, it's not a heated building, a very small building. 
Um, and uh, many of the projects really focus on the nature of the location, the site, uh, regional uh, aspects, um, kind of, you know, local. In fact, the show that's just closing up there now is uh, by an artist named Linda Silman, who did a uh, project about invasive plants, a uh, fascinating project about invasive plants. So uh, KK was aware of my interest in geology and said, hey, um, you know, that's an interesting land- aspect of the landscape. Would you be uh, interested in doing doing something about geology? And, of course, I said yes, not knowing what I was getting myself into. And um, I thought long and hard about this and came up with several ideas, the first of which, which I jettisoned after a week or two, was um, doing something about garnets. And some people might know that uh, the, the state mineral of Connecticut is the garnet. Oh, interesting. <laughs> you know, the, I didn't know that. And uh, it's mainly because of this one iconic location in Roxbury, Connecticut, Green's Farms, where they mined these beautiful garnet crystals, which they were mined and crushed to make sandpaper, garnet paper. Mm. Um, and um, I've, I've always been fascinated with, with kind of garnet, garnets in general. And um, But I started thinking about that, and it, it didn't have a lot of um, traction. So, um, you know, I was very aware uh, that the northwestern part of the state was known for uh, uh, an iron industry that went back to the 18th century. I didn't know all that much about it. I knew a little bit. I started looking into that and realized very quickly that it was a really rich area to kind of dive into. And just one thing I wanted to say is, you know, I'm not a historian. I'm not an industrial archaeologist. I'm not a material scientist. Uh, so I depended on the knowledge of a lot of people who came before me or are alive now to kind of help me do this. Uh, it was, you know, pretty, a lot of research, I mean, a, a research-based project, finding out about this iron industry. And... Um, so um, I decided it was essentially uh, late fall of last year, uh, November and December, where I decided to move forward with this idea of working, uh, doing a project about the iron industry. And uh, the challenge was I didn't want to do something that was a didactic exhibition where people would come and learn something. I mean, I wanted to approach this from a poetic uh, point of view, not knowing how to do that. I took it upon myself to start visiting these sites where these iron, uh, where the iron was mined, but also where uh, the, fa- uh, the furnaces and foundries were, and uh, that was really the core of my um, my project was traipsing through the woods. And the timing was perfect because, with the um, the pandemic um, and being kind of trapped inside and not doing a lot of traveling, it gave me an opportunity to kind of explore parts of northwestern Connecticut I've never been to and really got off the beaten path of uh, finding these furnace sites, many of which are just, you know, piles of uh, bricks in the woods. Uh, some of them have been restored, but um, the majority of them are ruins. I you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated by thinking of what was on the land before I was on the land, before I was in, in a given place. And, um, I mean, you know, I live in, along the Quinnipiac now, and and I just always think of what was this like 500 years ago? What was this like a thousand years ago? And and yours is both looking back to when this um, the iron was first discovered, and then but then also this this geological thing that happened. I think you said 485 million years ago is is when these iron deposits were formed. Yeah, it, it's um, you know if you go back and in, in the deep time, it's um, you know, at, the, at that point, 450 million years ago, um, 
Connecticut or that northwestern Connecticut was a, a shallow sea, um, and it was the, the uh, proto-Atlantic Ocean before the current Atlantic Ocean, and there was um, an island arc off the coast, kind of like contemporary Japan is off of uh, uh, the Asian mainland. And um, in the shallow sea, there were deposits, um, you know, uh, deposits on the bottom of the ocean. And it's interesting, uh, geologists have kind of figured out that um, biological action actually deposits iron. And uh, there were there were uh, creatures living in the ocean that uh, concentrated iron, and iron ended up being in the sediments. And subsequently, um, the Atlantic Ocean closed up. There was you know, crushing of the the, uh, the geologic sediments, and it was the uplift of the uh, uh, Appalachian Mountains, the first uplift, the conic uh, uplift of the mountains. And you know, uh, some of some of you might have heard of uh, the Taconic Mountains, which are run along the Connecticut, Massachusetts, and uh, New York, Connecticut, and Massachusetts border, which are really the earliest part of the Appalachian Mountain Range. And these sediments were crushed. And uh, the iron deposits were concentrated, and the iron ended up being in this area, a very small area that's around the ancestral core of these, this island arc. So the, high, the highest points in the Taconics are Precambrian, really ancient rock, but around them um, are areas where this iron was uh, you know, deposited and uh, was mineable as ore. And uh, it was 1731 when some surveyors uh, in Salisbury, really discovered the first iron deposits up there. There had been iron uh, mined and smelted in the United States, uh, in Massachusetts. The earliest iron was made in Massachusetts in 1645, up in Saugus, Massachusetts. And there's actually a restored site up there, um, iron furnaces. Uh, it's not restored, it was actually recreated. <laughs> um, but the Saugus Iron Works uh, didn't last very long. The iron, the quality of the iron ore was very poor. And, um, you know, needless to say, uh, the growth of uh, England's, you know, North American colonies, iron was really needed and was at a premium. So iron was something that people wanted to find, and uh, they certainly found it in Salisbury. In fact, Ore Hill was literally a a small, you could debate if it was a hill or a small mountain, uh, was an incredibly rich deposit that was mined out over uh, the industry's history from – like I said, 1731 up until the early part of the 20th century. And Ore Hill doesn't exist anymore. It's now a huge lake. <laughs> they took away so much of the landscape. Mm. Um, I, I think part of this project for me, you talk about the sense of time in the landscape, was the environmental uh, devastation that happened in northwestern Connecticut. And you go up uh, to Salisbury, Cane, and Sharon, uh, Cornwall, all those places, they seem so beautiful and idyllic. And uh it's interesting to think, turn back the clock, particularly the period around the Civil War when the iron industry was in full swing, of how these these towns and villages were uh, sites of heavy industry. I mean, significant heavy industry, mining and smelting. At, at the height of the industry around the Civil War, there were over 50 uh, furnaces. And um, the thing was, in terms of the environment, is that um, the fuel for the furnaces was, was wood, firewood. And it took over 300 acres of fire of trees cut down every year to fuel a single furnace. So very quickly, the trees in northwestern Connecticut were cut down um, and used for fuel for these furnaces, with the results uh, being the topsoil started running off. And uh, 
the hills were denuded of topsoil. The rivers were choked with with sediment. Um, the environmental impact over time, though, now it's not that great compared to other sorts of resource extraction. Um, there's no toxic waste there. Um, the remnants of the iron industry is you know, largely faded from view. There's, you know, you could find these furnaces in the woods. There's a handful of furnaces that have been restored or partially restored, and they're really interesting places that are worth visiting. Uh, particularly, um, um, there's one in Kent at the Eric Sloan Museum on the property of the Eric Sloan Museum. In Roxbury, Connecticut, uh, Mine Hill Preserve, there's a beautiful uh, furnace that's been restored there. Um, in um, uh, Canaan, there's the Beckley Furnace, which is actually a state uh, industrial heritage site, which is worth visiting. Uh, but the majority of these locations, like I was saying, are, are really very, some of them are very hard to find, and they're literally just a pile of bricks and uh, and slag in the woods. Um, and one thing I, I really wanted to do from the get-go with this was, you know, usually my work as an artist, I work with um, found materials. And I made a, a, a switch, you know, well, 25 years ago into working with found materials, uh, feeling like there was too much stuff in the world, and just repurposing what was already there was actually... Uh, aesthetically and ethically of, of the way to go. So with this project, I, I felt that I really wanted to use the materials of the industry, which are iron and charcoal. So uh, I knew right early on that those were the things the, the things I wanted to use, and the question was how to use them. That was the, the challenge, and particularly iron, because I'd never worked with iron before, and I never really thought about iron um, as a material. Uh, many, many years ago, uh, I did some casting, and I did casting in bronze and aluminum, but I haven't, you know, done any of that kind of work in, in a long time. So the challenge was thinking about iron and, and what uh, what the potential was for iron and also how iron and charcoal, how I could um, speak about this, this history, um, this past, and uh, in a way that was poetic. You're listening to listener-supported WPKN in Bridgeport at 89.5 FM. We're online at WPKN.org, speaking with artist Richard Klein about a project that he has. Uh, and has this opened yet? No. So um, the opening is on Saturday, September 25th from 4 to 6. And uh, the situation is that the, uh, the the ice house is actually on you know private property, on K.K. Kozik's property. And it's not open uh, to the public uh, other than by appointment. However, the opening on the 25th is open to the public, which is 4 to 6. And uh, it's 34 Upper Main Street in Sharon, which is right on the Sharon Green, uh, directly or diagonally across from uh, Sharon uh, Town Hall. So um, anyone can come to the opening on the, on the 25th from 4 to 6. Uh, after that, it's by appointment. And later on, I could give out... Um, KK's phone number, which is the best way to reach her if anyone's interested in visiting. It's up. Uh, it opens on the 25th and runs until November 7th. And um, and, and you said it's 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 a a, a warm, mostly warm weather museum. But uh, you're you're talking about you're, you're talking about cold iron. So I guess that's. <laughs> well, the the funny thing is, you know, iron obviously is uh, when when cast, it's hot, and I'm doing this in in a building that was an ice house. <laughs> So there's a little bit of irony there. Um, so what I decided was that I wanted to use native iron and charcoal and wood, wood to make charcoal. So 
Um, I started when I started going to these uh, abandoned furnace sites. Uh, some of them are on private property, and um, what I did was retrieve iron from the slag heaps, uh, scrap iron that was in the slag. And the, some of these places have incredible amounts of slag. The slag is this glass, glassy material, sometimes with uh, iridescent colors, blues and greens, which is the waste material from the smelting process. And uh, there's great heaps of it. Um, the furnace sites are all along rivers, and the reason for that, or brooks, the reason for that is that um, water power was used to drive the bellows to force air into the furnaces. So um, towards the end of the in- industry, some of these places switched over to steam power, but uh, by and large, the industry was driven by water power to, to, fu- to uh, blow air into the furnaces. So um, these sites have these slag heaps, and... Um, I was very conscious of not wanting to disturb them. I didn't do digging in any of these sites, uh, even though they were on private property, and I had permission. There's enough scrap iron mixing with the slag on the surface. And when I say scrap iron, I'm talking about blobs of iron that were spilled, little puddles of iron that were spilled. Needless to say, after you know over 100 years, they're all rusty. <laughs> and um, through you know going to some of these a handful of these sites, I collected about over 200 pounds of iron. And um, then the question was what I was going to make with this. So um, I've used in my work before uh, uh, fungi, and uh, this is where the, the project takes kind of a curious turn. I was going to uh, ask you about those fungi. I was, I was very curious about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I've always been fascinated with fungi. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot, a lot of interest in fungi recently in the way that they form symbiotic relationships with other plants, particularly trees. But um, one thing is that fungi are not plants. They're not animals. They're a separate, um, you know, phylum. And um, in some sense, fungi are much like us people, that they don't uh, photosynthesize. They get their energy from um, other th- from carbon sources that are, um, you know, are, are dying or dead. So um, fungi live off other plants, rotting material in the soil, concentrated old sunlight, the way that we as a uh, civilization uh, live off of uh, fossil fuels. And um, I thought there was kind of some sort of poetic connection there, the idea of using fungi. Um, And uh, the other thing was in going to these sites, uh, one of the sites I went to was in uh, Kent, uh, Bulls Bridge, which the furnace is right on the banks of the Housatonic River. And um, I was there, and the, it was actually the winter time. and uh, above the furnace there was a tree with a very large woody fungus growing on it. And I had never seen this type of fungus before, even though I'd, I'd been kind of aware of fungi. Uh, I wouldn't consider myself an expert, but I know a, n- a number of them you know, by sight. And um, it was a uh, black locust tree, and uh, this one particular uh, variety of fungi, uh, cracked cat polypore fungi, uh, grow only almost exclusively on black locust trees. So this very large fungus, when I say large, it was a shelf fungus. It was about um, over a foot across horizontally. It was on this tree, and I kind of took it as a sign, like, oh, that's interesting. Um, The form of it, too, was a beautiful form. So... Um, I started thinking about um, what was made with the iron during the height of the industry, and one of the things was uh, armaments. In fact, um, in uh, 
1770, the British North American colonies, they became the world's largest iron producer or third largest iron producer behind England and, and Germany. And um, it threatened the prosperity of the English iron makers. And then the revolution began. And in 1776, Connecticut's Committee uh, of Safety seized the Lakeville furnace in order to produce cannons for the Continental Army during the revolution. Um, the production of weapons during this period uh, earned the region the title, the arsenal of the revolution, which continued really up until the Civil War. So um, cannons and weaponry figured large, but the other thing was that, you know, everything you can imagine made out of uh, iron was made, uh, cookware pots, um, size, uh, scissors, knives, um, and one of the biggest uh, products that were made uh, in northwestern Connecticut were the wheels for railroad uh, engines, for railroad uh, uh, cars and, and engines, which are ironic because the the railroad was one of the things that ultimately put um, the nail in the coffin of the industry. Um, the industry, you know, lasted. The last furnace shut down in Canaan in uh, 1923, but by that point, the industry, the iron industry, in the United States had moved out west, and particularly with the discovery in the late part of the 19th century, early 20th century, of the giant iron deposits in northwest, in northern Minnesota, along the Great Lakes. But the railroad initially allowed, uh, you know, Connecticut iron to be transported distances to be sold for other, you know, for other purposes. But then ultimately the railroad, as it went west, and particularly through Pennsylvania, it opened up the coal fields of Pennsylvania where coal could be shipped. And uh, that was a potent combination of the high quality iron ore from Minnesota being transported on the Great Lakes to Pennsylvania. And the coal was there, the fuel and that's really, you know, was one of the sites of the of the, the, the explosion of uh, the American iron industry in the late nineteenth and twentieth century. Yeah, I, I'm I'm fascinated by the <laughs> back to the fungus, um, and I and I wondered when I was looking through all these the the, the lovely series of photographs that you sent me of these works, if they're if they had some special property where they um, maybe concentrated minerals in in their structure or something. But, um, you know, I guess it, it also makes sense just from, uh, and circling back to the Richard Powers book, the the overstory, which is all about trees, a short story is about trees, um, this this idea of something that had been, as you said, we, we, we think of the northwestern Connecticut as so beautiful and bucolic and expensive, and 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 it's just it's hard to imagine it as a sort of a industrial wasteland. But now it's a place where trees can grow slowly and fungus can grow slowly and sort of back to back, full full cycle back, I guess. Well, you know, the the question was what, how is I how is I going to use these fun, fungi and what context? And um, in walking through the woods, you know, I came across uh, actually this was in uh, in. Um, Lakeville, uh, a large dead tree laying in the forest that was hollow, a hollow log. And it, um, it was a beautiful thing. And I looked at it and I suddenly realized that I had kind of seen this image. And the image I was thinking of is a historical photograph taken, taken in 1864 of Horatio Ames, one of the iron makers of northwestern Connecticut who ran the Ames Iron Works, standing with a cannon that he had made for the Civil War. Uh, a cannon, a huge cannon that weighed 19,500 pounds. And uh, the cannon was horizontal, and it looked, 
like a fallen tree. And I put two and two together at that point and said, aha, I'm going to make a form, a large form that's a cannon slash fallen tree. But what am I going to make it out of? And making it out of a real fallen tree, just there wasn't, and putting fungus on it growing, uh, it just struck me it was dealt too much with the natural world and not enough about this history. Um, and uh, I happened to go to an architectural salvage yard uh, on Route 7 in uh, Sheffield, Massachusetts. This is at the end of last year. I'd been there before, and they sold, you know, old doors and windows and whatnot. But in the back uh, of this kind of garage-like building, there were two uh, 19th-century wooden columns from houses, um, you know, round wooden columns that had been uh, taken from a disassembled or house. And I suddenly realized that's the thing I'm going to use. And then um, I was told by the fellow who ran the place that the columns came from a house in Canaan across the border. So... There, I put two and two together, and I realized, like, well, you know, the economy of all these towns, the initial uh, economy of these towns and the grand houses in these towns were supported primarily by the iron industry, by the captains of industry back then who, who developed and financed the iron industry. So using a column for, from one of these houses was a perfect uh, way to kind of think about that history. So the column became this horizontal object. Uh, it's about seven feet long. Um, that is... Um, I burnt. I carbonized. Mm. So it's it look it's a large black, heavily black object, horizontal, that has um these cast iron funguses growing off of it, uh horizontally the way they would in, on a fallen tree. Um that's one of the forms. Once I, I decided I was gonna work with kind of this architectural history and talk about, you know, the, the civil civilized side of this, the civilization uh, it was another element that I developed, which um, from looking at the architecture in these towns, and, and I was uh, walking around Sharon, and there's a house on the Sharon Green that has uh, dental crown molding around the windows and doors. And I don't know if anyone knows what that is, but it's that kind of molding that's a repetitive uh, kind of rectangular geometric uh, design on it that's used in, interior, inside uh, as a crown molding, but also outside on buildings. And uh, I obtained a piece, an old piece of that, and once again, it's burnt, but I have it instead of uh, like the uh, the column, which I put horizontally instead of its original vertical orientation, the crown molding I have going vertically and uh, growing on it are, um, in this case, uh, hemlock uh, varnish shelf fungi, which are another species of fungi that um, are common in northwestern Connecticut, uh, cast in iron. So... I gathered up uh, my my 200 pound plus uh, of scrap iron, and what I wanted to do was find a foundry that was willing to work with this old metal. And uh, through a long chain of events, I ended up uh, in Elliott, Maine, which is right on the uh, New Hampshire border, uh, southwestern Maine, uh, at the uh, Green Foundry. And uh, Josh and Lauren Dow uh, were enthusiastic about what I wanted to do. So um, we did a test pour in the spring. Uh, with some of the iron, and then uh, proceeded actually in June to cast these fungus uh, in iron, this retrieved iron from these sites. The one thing I, I did was, once again, because of the idea of working with found material, I didn't make molds of these fungus to cast them. I actually had Josh and Lauren burn the fungus out of molds. So the, mold, the fungi, fungi were um, you know, put in ceramic shell molds. Uh, I actually sealed them up with shellac so they wouldn't absorb moisture, 
put in ceramic cell molds, burnt out in a furnace where they, they heat up, fire the ceramic material. So it's uh, extremely tough and hard. But in the process, the fungi were burnt away, leaving voids. And uh, in turn, the iron was poured into these voids to cast the fungus. So the other thing is that I felt some sort of responsibility about this kind of history and this cycling because, you know, ultimately the, the project is about kind of deep time and the cycles of both nature and civilization. So um, what I'm doing is that uh, some of the, the cast iron fungi, I'm going to be returning to the furnace sites at the end of the project to allow them rust, to rust back into the landscape um, as kind of a closure to it to, to return them to the earth. No, that, that, that's interesting. You're listening to Listener Supported, WPKN in Bridgeport at 89.5 FM. We're online at WPKN.org. I'm Valerie Richardson. I'm speaking with Richard Klein about a project he's been working on, uh, and, and it's opening in uh, September 25th, and you can, um, get, you can go see it up in Sharon, Connecticut. And, you know, Richard, I love, I love doing interviews about visual arts and things that artists are doing, but it's, uh, it's very hard, I think, for people sometimes to visualize it and, and to uh, they might be getting lost in all these descriptions. Is there, is, is there at this point a website that people could look at and sort of see? You could, uh, actually, there's some great photos that have been posted on the uh, Ice House Project space. Uh, website and also with Instagram and my Instagram feed too. Um, uh, on Instagram, I'm Richard Klein67. Uh, Richard and Klein spelled K L E I N, and uh, you just Ice House and also KK Kozik, uh, her website. Um, if you Google KK, it's KK and Kozik is K O Z I K. K O, yeah, Z I K. Just going to make sure I'm spelling it right. Um, she's posting information about the project, actually, at this point, too, to get some idea of what I'm doing. Okay, so people can can see uh, can see some of these things that we're talking about, um, and I, I I hope to get up there. I'm I'm, I'm marking that on my calendar. I hope to get up and um, visit visit Sharon that afternoon and and see this. I'd love to. I'm, I'm just really fascinated by it. As I said, I'm always just your 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 creative ventures are, are always uh, feel very transcendent to me, and I I enjoy speaking about them and I look forward to seeing this. And you know, speaking of tra- transcendent, from transcendent to the transcendentalist. Um, um, this, this. I'm thinking about the ironwork, and I'm thinking about the, um, you know, this, this sort of rape of the of the land in northwestern Connecticut, and and sort of how that spanned uh, the sort of the lives of people like uh, Henry David Thoreau and um, some of the transcendentalists, people who really reacted to this this rape of the land and 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 what they saw the. Um, Industrialization of this of this region was were there people who were sort of paying attention and writing about this and seeing forests felled and and uh, streams that are were being turned over to to the production of iron. I'm not aware of any criticism at the height of the industry, although I'm, I can't imagine there not being uh, any criticism. But you have to remember that the industry at its peak employed a huge number of people and were the basis of the economy. One thing which I think is really important is that the the energy, like I said, was generated by charcoal. And the people who made the charcoal were called colliers. And this was these, these people were at the bottom of the ladder, economic ladder. Uh, it, making charcoal was a dirty and 
difficult and uh, really unpleasant job of uh, cutting trees, piling the tree the trees up in these radial piles, like mounded piles, covering these piles then with earth and leaves, and lighting the wood on fire underneath, but not allowing it to burn out of control. So it simmered and turned into charcoal, where you'd have to tend this simmering pile of wood for sometimes weeks on end until it cooled, then digging uh, digging through the covering and pulling out the charcoal. And um, the people who made the charcoal um, were, by and large, uh, recent immigrants, uh, you know, most of which were poor, Native Americans uh, who lived up in northwestern Connecticut and southwestern Massachusetts, uh, some enslaved blacks, free blacks, um, really, you know, like I said, it was the bottom of the economic ladder. It was a very, very dirty and unpleasant job. These people, you know, as with people in this kind of position, there's very little known about many of them. Their history is not written about. Um, and I, you know, did some investigation and talking to historians about them. And then there's, there's, you know, a little bit of knowledge. But the people who are known, of course, are the industrials, the people who actually ran the foundries, the financiers. You know, we think now, we think about Connecticut as being a, a state that, you know, the economy is uh, dependent on defense industries. You know, General Dynamics making submarines in New London, Sikorsky Helicopter, uh, Pratt & Whitney. Um, but the, the the kind of industrial, uh, military industrial complex goes back really far. In fact, um, Horatio Ames, with his large cannons, he wanted so badly to make weapons, he lobbied Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War to make these cannons for the Navy. And after several years of lobbying, uh, Lincoln finally released the money for him to make 15 of them. He only made 13 of them. And the irony is that um, they were made, they were finished uh, in uh, 1864, late 1864, and delivered in 1865. But of course, the Civil War ended in 1865. And... Um, as far as it's known, these cannons were never used. They were obsolete as soon as they were made, much like a lot of military hardware. And uh, no one knows what happened to them. They were probably melted down, broken up and melted down to be turned into other things. But there was very little criticism, I think, of the industry at the time. Uh, there were some historical figures involved in the industry, uh, most notably uh, Ethan Allen, who was an investor who lived in northwestern Connecticut. He uh, put up money and was an investor in one of the furnaces. Interesting. And then, you know, the whole the whole munitions thing, too, and I'm thinking of, like, Eli Whitney and the growth of the Remington factory, all, all these things down in in New Haven that... Um... Oh, he's, the, the, the Iron Works sold uh, iron to, uh, you know, uh, Samuel Colt, to Colt, uh, you know, firearms in Hartford. Uh, the iron went wide, you know, wide and far in terms of being used for other purposes. Interesting. So, if if I were um, if I were traveling around Connecticut in that time, and I guess Connecticut was never really a great farming state because of all the, all the rocks. Well, there was farming. That was the other thing that cut down the trees in Northwest in Connecticut where, mm-hmm. where it was farming, agricultural purposes. But but, uh, but the the landscape I'm talking about in that northwest corner that you know it was very steep, mountainous territory, and um, you know a lot of it was unsuited for farming, but there were trees in great abundance um, and they were cut down. In fact, you know, the reason, I mean, we're talking about the first great era of resource extraction by Europeans up here, of kind of coming and taking from the landscape. You have to remember, you know, Europeans came over here for political and 
religious reasons, but ultimately they were, you know, looking for ways to make money. And um, you know, initially there were beaver, the beaver, the Dutch and the English were after beaver. Then there was, you know, timber because England had been denuded of trees, and so. The English saw the white pines along the Connecticut River and realized they could make great ships masts out of them. So a lot of timber was taken from New England for shipbuilding, and then iron. Iron became uh, the, you know the king the king industry in that uh, you know late 18th and uh, first half of the 19th century. Interesting, and but you say eventually it did it did go away after more but uh, better was discovered up in um, up in Minnesota. You know, I mean, who who knows if that hadn't happened, what Connecticut would be like today? Well, there's the iron. There's you know there, there's iron left, and uh, you know I've been to a couple of the places where you can still get iron ore off the surface, and uh, some of it is quite beautiful actually as a material. Um, it's it's the the best iron ore is about sixty percent iron. Occasionally, you get a piece of, of ore that is uh, has enough iron in it where a magnet will stick to it. Um, but by and large, the iron is, you know, uh, it, it looks like it's rust, essentially. <laughs> it's it's a hematite, which is a kind of iron oxide. And, and you know, as we know, uh, as everyone knows, rust never sleeps. So iron uh, has a uh, hard time existing on the face of the earth. The other thing, I think, is... You know, in thinking about iron, like I said, I never thought about it before, how important iron is to the earth. Uh, first of all, by weight, 35% of the earth is iron. The core, the, the outer liquid core and the inner core are iron. And it's the outer liquid core of the earth that creates the earth's magnetic field. Mm. Without the earth's magnetic field, the solar wind would have swept, swept away the earth's atmosphere a long time ago. So iron allows life to exist on this on our planet. The other thing is because of iron, it's reactive. How reactive it is, and particularly bonding with oxygen, is that um, uh, hemoglobin is uh, a form of iron, is a compound of iron that where uh, iron and oxygen are bound together through our blood. And most uh, most uh, animals with circulatory systems, uh, hemoglobin is the compound that delivers oxygen to their to our bodies and their bodies. So. Not only is life in general dependent on the earth and on iron, but even specifically our our physiology is uh, you know iron based. That's fascinating. I'm sure you've you've met some um, some really interesting people along the way as as you started sort of getting into this. Oh well, you know that was to me that was the, the gravy on the project was just meeting incredibly fascinating people, like I say, historians, industrial archaeologists. The person I think I owe the greatest debt to um, is someone named Ed Kirby, who was a, a self-taught historian who lived in Sharon, who wrote a book called Echoes of Iron in Connecticut's Northwest Corner. I had the opportunity to speak with Ed on the phone uh, at the end of last year. Unfortunately, Ed passed away uh, in the winter of, of, of this year. Um, but um, he, the that book was really important to me, and, and Ed was actually a font of information. I spoke to him for about an hour on the phone. Um, uh, Robert Gordon and Michael Raber. Robert Gordon is a, a retired Yale professor who was a material scientist, and Michael Raber is an industrial archaeologist. They wrote a book called Industrial Heritage in Northwestern Connecticut, which is talking about the industries in general in Northwestern Connecticut. Uh, focuses a lot on the iron industry, but other industries, too. Uh, I spoke to both of them on the phone, um, and um, they were 
numerous people. Uh, John Palowski, who's the curator of the Connecticut Museum of Mining and Mineral Science in Kent. Um, Elizabeth Shapiro is the director of arts, uh, preservation, and, and state museums at the Connecticut Office on the Arts. Um, and then many friends who helped me. My uh, Roger Bouard, my friend who um, actually climbed trees uh, to get uh, retrieve fungus for me. <laughs> he, he's an old tree climber. Had a, early in his life, he did uh, was an arborist, so he's able to climb some trees to get these uh, cracked cap polypore fungus off trees, which sometimes grow quite high. Uh, Jackie Littlejohn, who lives in Weston, who collected, who's an inveterate hiker who collected uh, fungus for me in the winter when she was walking. Um, my wife, Mary, who's long-suffering through this project, <laughs> helping me in various ways. And, of course, K.K. Kozik, at, uh, curator and director of the Ice House Project Space um, in, uh, in uh, Sharon, who, you know, without her invitation, this never would have happened. I never would have taken this kind of curious trip into the world of iron. So have you uh, installed uh, the show yet? No, it goes. It's uh, the end of next week. Actually, is the the, the installation. And there's some other elements. Um, there, there is a photograph, a repurposed photograph of uh, Horatio Ames and his cannon. Actually, in the exhibition, there's some going to be some leaf debris from the forest floor. Actually, uh, I kind of left the ice house the way it is. I mean, it's a 19th century building, kind of white on the outside to kind of talk about that kind of architectural history. I haven't done anything really to the building itself. Um, left the windows open. Um, but, you know, it, it was a fascinating journey. And the thing is that now um, that I've done this, it, it makes me want to kind of pursue this a little further. Um, one thing I would, became aware of is that there hasn't been any iron poured in northwestern Connecticut, as far as I know, since the 1920s. And uh, Josh and La uh, Lauren Dow, who run the Green Foundry, have a portable iron furnace that they bring around. Uh, it weighs a ton, but they're able to move it around. It's on wheels. And uh, I'm trying to get them uh, potentially next year. This is not really part of my project, but just kind of a, a, a spinoff is um, to bring it to uh, the Eric Sloan Museum uh, in Kent, where there is a restored, partially restored furnace and actually do an iron pour uh, on the property there, um, which I think would be a nice, another circular part of the project besides me returning some of these fungus to iron fungus to, to oxidize back into the landscape and actually have uh, some iron poured again in, uh, in Connecticut. That would be very interesting. What was the, the, the heating point? Was 2,200 degrees? Yeah, and um, that, that's the other interesting thing is that the, the quality of the iron from northwestern Connecticut was very high because iron is from 2 to 4 percent, uh, cast iron is from 2 to 4 percent uh, carbon, and charcoal, by fueling these furnaces with charcoal, it added just the right amount of charcoal. And uh, if, you, if you're if you fueling a, uh, an iron furnace with coal, there's sulfur in the coal, which interferes with making high-quality iron. So the iron that was made in Connecticut was, was extremely high-quality at the time. And actually was an early example of branding. It was called Salisbury Iron, even if it didn't come from Salisbury, if it came from the surrounding towns, because it was known for its high quality. Um, steel, you know, they they make things out of steel too. But steel is uh, they take the iron and they heat, reheat it and they beat it with these hammers uh, to actually remove uh, carbon and harden it. And uh, that's a whole other operation. I mean, it, steel was being made in Connecticut uh, slowly, you know, part, as part of this industry, but primarily it was cast iron. 
Very cool. Well, we're running out of time. I have to um, make way for Bill Cosentino, who's going to be starting up at, at 5.30. So as, as it's always, always a pleasure speaking with you. And I am going to try getting up to the opening. I think it'd be really interesting. I'd love to well, see Well, like it. I said, you know, and, and anyone is invited to this is September 25th from 4 to 6 p.m., 34 Upper Main Street in Sharon. And after that, uh, you need to call KK uh, at 917-488-8740. And, um, you know, thank you for, for indulging me with talking about this. I've, I've, um, there's a lot more that could be said. And one thing I, before we, before we uh, part here, uh, I just want to encourage everyone, if you haven't done so, so haven't done yet, is to uh, support PKN and their move to downtown Bridgeport, uh, the new chapter. I think uh, it's important to get uh, PKN over the, uh, the top here. Um, please uh, contribute to the station. Well, thank you, thank you for um, thank you for putting that plug in. I've I've known you almost since I've been at the station. I I've started here in '89, so I think I've I've probably met you at some point, pretty pretty early on in, in that time. So it's always yeah. I go back to the to the uh, Harry Minot, uh, Ruth Eddy uh, days, um, Deb Johnson, and uh, it's involved actually some of the early fundraisers, uh, art fundraisers that were done in New Haven and elsewhere for the station back in the in the '80s. Very interesting. We were going to do an art art fundraiser this year, but it's it, it, it got off the ground a little bit. Um, it was going to be part of Bridgeport Art Trails, but we we sort of realized that we would not be able to to do it fully as we wished to because of just because of COVID. It's just not well, it's not the, the time thing, to do it's it. An enor- it's an enormous amount of work. <laughs> right. It's not. It's not. Easy money. I mean, it, it takes a lot of work, and uh, obviously the generosity of a lot of people. And uh, it's uh, sometimes uh, you know I've been involved in art fundraising in a lot of different ways, uh, benefit auctions, and uh, you know it's 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 work. It's hard work. Right. The ones we've done in the past have, have, have been more about community than they've actually fundraised. But but it's it's fun to do. Um, just to circle back to your project, uh, where mention again where people can go and see what we've been talking about. I'm sure they they might be perplexed and curious at this point. Um, you could look at my Instagram feed, Richard Klein sixty seven. You could go to uh, KK's Instagram feed or KK's website, uh, KK Kozik's website. Um, to um, to look at uh, you know some of the images of some of these works we're talking about. Obviously, there's no images of the installation yet because it has been done. But you get a sense of uh, some of these objects I made out of out of uh, burnt wood and, and cast iron. They are they are very interesting and um, and fungus. I, the fungus are quite interesting. I, I saw that photograph of the person climbing the tree, um, getting getting these fungus. The, that, that's my friend Roger who who. who I have to credit him with he's he's willing to do pr- pretty much anything, and I convinced him to in Reading actually those those fungus that's those a grove of black locusts in Reading, and he climbed for me to get the fungus off. I thought maybe that was you. It's hard to tell who it was. No, 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 no. I I, I have no. That's one ability I don't have is climbing trees that way with tree climbing equipment. So. Right. Well, thank thank you very much, Richard. I look forward to seeing you soon. I hope. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, uh, once again. Uh, we wish, wish the best for WPCAN and their move coming up. Uh, hopefully it will happen soon and, uh, and, uh, and smoothly. So our next interview will be in the new studios. Maybe you can come visit. Excellent. Great. Okay. Great. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye. And you are listening to listener-supported WPKN in Bridgeport at 89.5 FM.